Are you interested in learning more about how to start your Salesforce career? Be sure to register for our next live webinar showing you exactly how the Salesforce Career Development Program works, our latest statistics, and up-to-date information about what's going on in the Salesforce ecosystem. To register now, head over to talentstacker.com forward slash live. That's talentstacker.com forward slash L-I-V-E. We look forward to seeing you on the next live webinar. I would just recommend keeping that quiet. Your clients don't need to know that you're nomading across the country. Hi, I'm Anita Smith. I'm Bradley Rice. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the Salesforce, Salesforce for Everyone podcast. In today's show, we have another Q&A session. Brad and Anita discuss when it's actually appropriate to ignore your boss. Do you not want to work past five o'clock? Then please do not pick up the phone if somebody calls you after five o'clock. Yeah, I don't answer when it's not during work hours. Also, we get a few interesting takes on some of our listeners' names. Let me try to pronounce this. Limix or Limu? <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry, Zach, but maybe one of the two is right. Maybe we got it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Salesforce for Everyone podcast. In this week's episode, we are going to be hosting a Q&A episode answering questions from the community. So these could be voicemails. These could be questions you ask inside of the Salesforce for Everyone community groups. And so we're going to make sure that we get the questions answered that are most pertinent to you guys. With me to help get these questions answered, as always, we have Anita Smith. How's it going, Anita? It's going all right. A little stressed out in the process of buying my first home and the uh, closing date keeps moving. So I, I don't want to jinx myself, but I'm hoping we close this week. It's been a process. I, I really wish they would teach this stuff in school or something because all this is brand new to me. And then aside from that, I heard some good news. I have been extended through the end of 2023 with my clients. So that's always exciting, especially after a house purchase. So I, I know I'm good through the next year, at least. What's new with you? Yeah, not not a whole lot new over here. We're just, yeah, getting used to the the winter weather as we transition into that being in Texas. I think you're you're well aware of that. So we're, we're, we're getting used to that too. But yeah, that, that's awesome that, you know, your contract is extended. I know that definitely feels good. I know when we bought our first home, there were definitely a lot of nerves involved, but I will say after a few months of realizing everything's perfectly fine, all the jitters wear off. So yes, fingers crossed, everything goes smooth with the closing because that is quite the process. You're right. So yeah, I'm sure it'll all be fine. Well, I guess we should probably get some questions answered from the community. Uh, this should be fun. And I think we have a voicemail to get us started off this week. We do. This first one is, oh, I am going to butcher... This person's name, I am so sorry. It's from Bernardo Vasconcelos. I think that was perfect. Hey, Brendan and Anita. This is Bernardo calling from Portugal. Thanks so much for your brilliant podcast. It has been really super helpful. So my question is, when applying for a job, we might be required to tell our salary expectations right there. How would you address this matter? Also, could you share your thoughts on U.S. locals versus people from other countries on the likes of lending their first Salesforce job in the U.S. markets and in terms of salary range as well? Thanks so much. Yeah. So for the first part of the question, I can answer it. <laughs> I try to avoid answering the question during interviews um, just because I want them to say it first. And I don't want to pigeonhole myself into a lower salary range. So everyone get a pen and piece of paper out and write this down. This is what I normally say. 
It's hard to know the full scope of the job at this point in the process. I'd love to know if you have a budget for this role. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Typically, what we talk about is trying to avoid giving a strict number. You need to be very well prepared for this part of the conversation. Like, Don't just show up to interviews not knowing how you're going to handle this question. Because this question, if you do well and if things go well, eventually one of the calls with that particular potential employer is going to ask you, how much would you like to get paid? Or they're going to make you an offer. And they might make you an offer on the spot and they might not make you accept it, right? They can't make you accept it, but they can say, how does that make you feel? What are your thoughts? And if you're not prepared for that conversation, you can end up in a spot where you say something you don't really want to say, like this looks great. And really you didn't think that looked great or how much do you want to get paid? And then you throw a number out based on maybe a job landed post that you saw this morning and how much somebody else got paid. And it has nothing to do with what you actually wanted to get paid. So I would say first know for yourself, like I think Anita's is point on like that has to be part of that conversation is I'm not really sure about the scope, exactly what goes into this role. But if you do, maybe you're further along and you do know what goes on in this role and you do know what's going to be expected. Just knowing that the average entry-level Salesforce income is about $70,000, at least for Talent Stacker alumni, knowing that and then knowing your personal needs. Like in my shoes, if somebody offered me $65,000 and I knew that $70,000 was the average, I'm probably going to accept that $65,000. Now we can talk about negotiating or this and that, but at the end of the day, I'm likely going to accept that $65,000 if it comes down to it. And just knowing that, like knowing that truly you're not going to walk away from it, that's what's important. So my advice is get real with yourself before this conversation comes up. Understand what your bottom dollar really is. Like if they said 64000 can you walk away with a straight face and feel okay with that going into the next interview? Or would you accept 64 even though you thought 65 was your bottom number? Like be real with yourself in those conversations. But to Anita's point, it's best if you can get them to pitch out even a ballpark like between... Sixty and eighty thousand dollars is what we were thinking, and then you can say that's you know that is aligned with with my thoughts. What I've seen is the market supports this, you know, closer to seventy thousand dollars, and that's definitely a number that I would be comfortable with. I also wanted to add, keep in consideration what the benefits package looks like because your number might increase or decrease depending on you know if you're in the U.S. How much of healthcare do they cover? PTO days, all that stuff. Now, to answer the second part of your question, so salary in the US tends to be higher than that in Europe. I think UK is pretty low. I'm not familiar with Portugal salary ranges. I'm not sure. Have you heard about anyone in Portugal, Bradley? I don't have that right in front of me, like what those salary ranges are. I think it's pretty well aligned with the UK. So I would think that you're probably looking at if you're specifically in Portugal, and you can you can Google this and try to... Uh, Mason Frank does an annual salary survey, and I know that they break down some different countries. So that'd be a good place to start. But I would say you're probably looking at twenty to $30,000 USD in a country like Portugal, if I had to guess based on what we've seen in other countries. But I think the bottom line here is that whether we're talking about Portugal or anywhere else in the world, what we see inside at Talent Stacker having transparency into these salaries for entry-level candidates is that the US, Canada, and Australia all seem to be pretty much the same, like within the same ballpark. And those are, from what we've seen, the three highest paid regions. And those range anywhere from, I would say, safely sixty dollars to $80,000 USD entry-level. 
And so it just differs. Again, the Mason Frank salary survey right now is probably the best indicator of how you can expect wages to differ by country based on that survey. So hopefully that does help. As far as if someone is you know, moving from outside of the US into the US and then how pay differs there and some of the barriers that might be in place for landing jobs, definitely not an area that I'm an expert in. So not something I would, I would want to touch on, but there are amazing community groups like Trailhead community, Salesforce for everyone on Facebook, even a LinkedIn post. Like I know it, maybe it feels a little transparent, like putting yourself out there. But if you just ask publicly, like have other people experienced this, if they've been through this and the, the best people to talk to on a topic like immigrating to the United States and what to expect with that process would be talking to people who have gone through that process. So that, that would be my recommendation. One thing I wanted to touch on before we move to another question is that anytime we're talking about salaries, please don't conflate your personal finances with what a company should pay you. The only thing that matters is the market rate for what individuals are being paid. And there may be some deviation from that. Like you might get paid a little bit less if you truly are just coming out of say high school and literally have no background in work at all. Or if you come from Say you come from 10 years of project management background, but no Salesforce background, you might deviate on a higher scale and get paid a little bit more coming into these roles. But those are the things that impact your value, not your personal finances. And I see a lot of people who come in and they're trying to negotiate salary based on their mortgage and their car payments and things like this. And your personal finances have absolutely nothing to do with your value to the company and what they're going to pay you. So just keep that in mind. Try to, I know it's difficult, but try to keep your personal budget and your needs separated from understanding your value as a candidate for these employers. Yeah. And in addition to the places Bradley mentioned to look up salaries, Talent Sacker, you know, we're very open about people's salaries. So if you check out the Talent Sacker or Bradley's LinkedIn profile every month, we'll go ahead and share what people are actually making for their first role each month. So moving on to the next question, this is from Holly Lennon. Holly asks, how do you navigate the vast Salesforce ecosystem? I wish there was an interactive map with the different roles, types of companies, expectations, job functions, years, experience, et cetera. Oh, that is a really good question. Yeah. So it, it used to be, I would say like 10 years ago, it was just simply, you know, you're coming into the Salesforce space. You're basically making a distinction between, am I going to be an administrator? Meaning I'm not going to do coding. Or am I going to be a developer, meaning I am going to do coding? And, and that's pretty much how everyone looked at Salesforce roles and things have changed a lot, which is a good thing. And because Salesforce has expanded so rapidly over the last 20 years, but especially the last, I would say, five or 10 years, we've seen a lot of changes and a lot more focus on the actual needs of Salesforce employers. So I would say the major roles that you're going to come across right now, and you can dive in, I mean, you can go layers and layers deeper to exactly, you know, specialized roles and things like that. But to keep it high level, because we do mainly focus on entry level roles on this podcast, I would say expect to be looking at either being a Salesforce administrator, a Salesforce developer, a Salesforce business analyst, or what's called a junior or associate consultant. And that's really just an entry level consultant. So those are the four major roles that you can expect to come into. And those can differ based on your interests. They can differ, you know, which one you might go after could be based on your interest, your background, what you want to do. A lot of people go, look, I'm not from a tech background. 
developer is just off the table for me. I don't want my first Salesforce job to be writing code and programming. Like, I don't think I can do that. And then a lot of people might say, well, do you want to be external, like in front of the clients a lot and talking to people and being on meetings and, and a lot of the communication? And if you say yes, then you know, a business analyst can be a really good role for you. And a lot of times those associate consultants are involved in a lot of internal conversations with the team and conversations with the clients as well. And then really, you know, if you just don't want to be in front of a client at all, uh, a Salesforce administrator can get you a little bit closer. Developer is definitely the most behind the scenes role in the Salesforce space based on the four roles we just talked about. But there's a lot of different reasons. You might pick different roles based on characteristics of you and what you enjoy. But those are the four you can sort of expect out of the gates. What are your thoughts, Anita? Yeah, so there's a really good resource on Trailhead that has the career paths. And it, it touches most of these things that Holly was asking about, the different types of roles, expectations, job functions, years experience. So you can go through and kind of click through it. And I believe it also shows you where you can go from there as you grow in your career. Now, with different companies, sometimes they do have different titles. So I find the best way, if, you, if you're really interested at a particular company, just try to reach out to someone who works there and set up a coffee chat and ask them. Because I mean, even jobs, non-Salesforce or Salesforce related, you get the job description, but then you go and do the job. It, it's not always exactly the same. So it helps to just have a one-on-one -on -one with someone who's actually there and can give you the real knowledge of, okay, this is what we're actually doing in this position. It's so true. Like it varies massively. Like that, it's a really good point because it's not just a little bit from one company to another, like being the Salesforce admins, like a little bit different. It is vastly different. And other things matter too, like stay not talking about like company culture, the industry they're in, or if their product aligns with the types of things you're interested in, but just specifically with these roles. I mean, a lot of companies simply don't understand the difference between an admin, a business analyst. And a lot of times they don't even understand the difference between a developer and these other roles. And they think, well, I need a developer because I want to automate something. But it turns out you can automate pretty much anything in Salesforce using declarative or what's called point and click functions that an administrator or even a business analyst should be relatively comfortable with. So it's really interesting. And the, the best way you're going to understand is, yeah, just like Anita said, you know, if you're serious about a, a job and you've read the job description and you go, you know what, I think this might be the one, or especially if you've done maybe a first round interview and you're like, okay, I really want to understand more about this business. Of course, you can ask questions in the interview, but another great way to do that is to just head over to LinkedIn or maybe some of these community groups. If you can find somebody who says, I work at that company. For instance, if a company like Fast Slow Motion, a consulting firm, were hiring, and I'd applied and I had a first round interview, I'd go to Salesforce for Everyone Facebook group and I would keyword search Fast Slow Motion and just see what had been said. Maybe somebody would say, I got hired at this company. And you could look, and maybe that was a year ago, and you could reach out to them directly and say, hey, you know, I'm actually interviewing right now. I was wondering if I could, you know, just talk to you for 10 minutes about that. And people are very open to having those types of conversations and helping you make a good decision. Because the truth is, these companies want to hire people who are happy to come work there and actually want to come work there. And you want to find a company that actually meets your needs so that it's a good fit on both ends. All right. So moving on to the next question, we have another one from Jennifer Dewey. Jennifer asks, what's work-life balance look like for different types of admin roles? Does it vary greatly by type of role, type of company? like a consultancy versus a startup or a nonprofit? 
She's working full-time with two kids while getting certified, and she's curious if there's more balance possible. I don't have any kids, so I can't answer that part. Bradley, maybe you want to take a shot at that? Yeah, I I think this is a good follow-up question to the last question. And so if you're in a position where you have responsibilities outside of work is basically how I would categorize this. And I think a lot of people can relate to having a kid or two, um, having another job while you're trying to transition into a Salesforce career, working on a certification is a good place to start. So that's really a, a normal setup for a lot of people is to have kids, have some other stuff going on, have a full-time job and try to transition into a career. So what roles, I, I think this question is specifically saying, so So what roles should I be looking for to experience maybe better balance? And what I would call out here is that I don't know that it's as much about the roles, like we just mentioned, like analysts versus admins versus devs versus consultants. Now I will tell you, typically, like generally speaking, consultants are going to have less balance. Now that's not always true. There are companies, again, it comes down to the company. There are companies who are going to put a lot of attention on making sure that you're finding good balance, but consultancies, generally speaking, are a little bit more challenging, more more intense. You have more clients, you have more internal employees that you're working with. You have projects with strict deadlines. It's just an environment that doesn't lend itself as well to that balance you're talking about where something might come up on a Monday and you just need to take a half day all of a sudden. That works better for internal roles. So I think it's this distinction between being a consultant versus working at a single company. And again, generally speaking, if you're looking for one of those like cozier positions where you work your eight to five, and if you don't necessarily meet a deadline, it's not the end of the world. You're not going to have clients like barking at you about it. You're still going to be challenged. You're still going to have things that you need to get done and you're going to need to continue to grow your skills. But internal roles, uh, working directly for a company versus working as a consultant on client-facing projects, you know, three or four or five at a time is definitely going to give you that balance more so than a consulting role. So I wouldn't say stay away from being a developer, stay away from being an admin. I would say, generally speaking, stay away from being a consultant right out of the gates if you're scared that work-life balance is going to be an issue. But the truth is, uh, and Anita, you know, does a really good job of this. So I'll let her talk about that some. Really, it's up to you to set your own boundaries when you're starting any new position. Yeah, I I was going to say there's really two parts to work-life balance. One, it's about the company and your team, but also it's yourself. Because I've seen people where they're just not setting any boundaries at all and they're not having a great work-life balance and it could easily be changed. I mean, someone I work with was like, Anita, how how do you have a great work-life balance? Like, I get pinged after work hours on the weekends. I'm just like, yeah, I don't answer when it's not during work hours. And I make that clear even when I first start a new role or a new job that I I won't respond during that. Or if I'm on PTO, I I just don't respond. And once you set that initial, like, don't, don't ever break, don't ever start answering stuff like outside of work hours. But once you set the initial boundary, people will respect it. So back to the the company side of work-life balance, it depends. Yes, I tend to see people who work for consultancies get a little burnt out, but I've also seen people who haven't. A key thing one of my fellow Talent Stacker members said he was focusing on when he applied to different consultancies, he wanted to ask and see if they had asynchronous work, meaning they don't have to be there to complete their work. They can complete their work 
anytime they want and it's fine with the boss. So if you are looking for kind of like not normal hours, I would suggest asking about that. If you don't want to have too much FaceTime, so for example, right now, the project I'm working on, I'm a Scrum Master, so it's my job to facilitate meetings. So I have to be at a lot of meetings, which makes my schedule not entirely flexible, like outside of those meetings, they're great. But if you have a job like as a consultant, and you have to have a lot of FaceTime with clients then your, your work-life balance might not be the best. Also, depending on the hours your company works, like if you're East Coast and the company you work for is on the West Coast, they might make you just work West Coast hours, which could be good or a bad thing. You know, you get to start your day later, but then your day ends sooner. I've also seen companies who are based out of like the West Coast, but if you're located on the East Coast or Central Time, you can work your normal hours in your time zone. So it just really depends. You have to just ask the right questions during the interview process, talk to other people who work for the company to really get a feel. And then finally, it all depends on your team because if you don't have a good team, it makes life very difficult. But if you have perfect team, like everyone's type A or something, and everyone like gets stuff done on time, it's rare, but it happens, then that makes a big difference. So it, it so many variables, it really just depends. Yeah, I would just go back to to like summarize that honestly I think just like listening to everything you just said like the biggest takeaway for me from seeing everyone go through this and enter into jobs and we've seen people go into jobs and get overwhelmed we've seen people go into jobs and not have any work to do um we've seen like every side of the spectrum on this and I'll say the biggest thing that's going to work across the board is that your personal boundary setting like Anita was saying like what is your goal? Like, do you not want to work past five o'clock? Then please do not pick up the phone if somebody calls you after five o'clock. Please do not reply to emails at 8 p.m. once you get the kids to bed. If I look at this exact question, I say, I've got two kids and I'm starting a new job. Then the biggest thing you can do, like me as a parent, I get my daughter to bed maybe like seven, eight o'clock. And then it would be, you know, if I followed what I feel like doing, I'd probably hop on, check some emails, send some emails. And what I'm doing is I'm training everyone that. Brad works evenings, like Brad works in the evenings. And if I call him, he might answer. And if you start doing that, and Anita mentioned this too, is that you could be perfect and you can not pick up your phone and not respond to an email after five o'clock for a month straight. But then the couple of days in a row that you do, it's game over. And now you got to reteach everybody. So coming out of the gates and you don't need to walk into interviews and they say, do you have any questions for us? And I do, you know, I have two kids and there's no way in hell I'm working past five o'clock. And like, that's not how you handle that boundary setting, right? You just, at the end of the day, any company, most companies are typically going to expect you to work between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. And if you've set the expectation that you're not sending emails out and answering phone calls before eight or after five, then they are going to learn those boundaries. And it is very hard to find Salesforce talent, especially good Salesforce talent. And if you're working and you're actually getting your job done between eight and five, the fact that you don't pick up maybe like somebody else does after five o'clock is certainly not going to put you in any kind of jeopardy to lose your job. So set your own boundaries, get comfortable with that. It can be uncomfortable to have your boss call and see that on your caller ID and just ignore it and not even send a text afterwards that says, I'll call you back tomorrow morning. Like you have to teach them these boundaries. And then one more thing, because I don't have kids, I don't know how to handle that work-life balance, but we had a great episode with stay-at-home parents. So definitely check that out. That was episode 20, and that will give you a better idea of how to handle that work-life balance. 
All right. So let's go to another voicemail question. This one is from Zach. Let me try to pronounce this. Lemix or Lemu? <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry, Zach, but maybe one of the two is right. Maybe we got it. Zach Al. <laughs> hey, this is Zach calling from New Hampshire. Thank you guys for this podcast. You guys have been amazing. My question has to do with RV living with a full-time Salesforce career. Bradley, I know you've had some experience in this matter, and I would love any tips or tricks or advice. You know, are we crazy? It's me and my wife and four kids. But this would be a great way for us to cut our expenses in half. You know, we wouldn't be living like we're on vacation, but, we, you know, we would be traveling around. Currently, I make six figures and will, you know, most likely be taking a pay cut. And this would be a great way to make the transition. However, being that I'm learning a new career while living on the road, I don't know if that's ideal, but um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So I love this question. Because honestly, I love it when people challenge their current lifestyles and they don't simply look around at what everyone else is doing and go, I'll just do that. Let me see how quickly I can climb this corporate ladder. Let me see how quickly I can move into the best neighborhood with the coolest cars and everything in between. Like I like it when people attempt to make a reality what they want to make a reality versus just following any kind of standard narrative. And this is definitely a good representation of that. I mean, we're talking about four kids, six people total, hopping in an RV and uh, yeah, traveling. So I don't know how often you're going to be traveling. For us, we were moving weekly. So I think that was pretty quick for most people who are trying to live full-time in an RV. A weekly move is is not typical. So I would expect you're probably going to be staying in places a little bit longer so you can sort of get a balance. Now, the big thing for me was... One of the things was internet. Anytime you're traveling, internet was important. And I did it completely from my cell phone. Like I did not have a MiFi device or any kind of specialized internet device. I just used my cell phone and would turn on the hotspot and would tether to it. And I would say that realistically, 80% of the time that worked. Now, the other 20% of the time was basically what I would do is we would drive to where we're going to be staying for the week and we would set up. And then I would check to see if I had quality internet tethering to my device. And like I said, about 20% of the time, the answer was no, you don't have quality internet. So you're going to be set up this week, Monday through Friday, and you got to figure out something. So the default thing is see if you can stay at RV parks that have Wi-Fi would be one thing that have like a common space with Wi-Fi. The other thing is find your closest Starbucks. Like, where is it? And one time we were staying in Trigo, Montana. And we did not have any internet at all. And I did have to drive 45 minutes to the nearest Starbucks and Whitefish uh, was the name of the town. I remember this because I was driving these roads Monday through Friday. And so went down there, worked at Starbucks that week. But keep in mind that that is a reality. Like internet is a reality. And maybe you have, what is it, Starlink? Maybe you have something like that. I don't know what the stability is there, especially when you're moving from space to space. But internet is going to probably be your biggest concern because you don't need a high speed realistically, as long as you're okay with being on a Zoom call with maybe no video, just audio, uh, you're not really going to need high-speed internet. Um, you're just going to need a stable connection is the biggest thing. So internet is the first thing that I would point out. Just be prepared to get to where you're going, set up shop, see if you've got quality internet, and then figure out where your closest free internet is. The other thing that is like major here for me that is something that I learned was don't tell all of your coworkers and clients and everybody what you're doing. And it's not to hide it. It's because perception becomes truth 
in a lot of these cases. And so in reality, any job you're working every now and then probably going to miss a deadline. You're going to make a mistake. Something's going to go wrong on a project. And if you're the one person on the project who every time you hop on a call, you're talking about the new place you're at and the new national park and the new state park and the new thing that you saw and your RV journey and this lifestyle that you're on, when you're missing deadlines, people are going to want to point at something to be the problem. And an easy thing to point at is that you're the one being different, right? Like you're the one who's traveling, you're the one in the RV, you're the one with unstable internet, all those kind of things. So I would just recommend keeping that quiet. There's no need to really bring it up, maybe with coworkers you're close with, but your clients don't need to know that you're nomading across the country in an RV. So that that would be my, you know, two big pieces of advice for somebody looking to hop in an RV and work. But otherwise, Salesforce careers, I mean, given that they're fully remote, given that they are cloud-based, so all you need is internet connection, it's a really good fit for someone looking for a sort of a digital nomad lifestyle. What do you think, Anita? So I haven't had the pleasure of traveling via RV, but I have been to a bunch of national parks and I travel quite a bit. For me, it's really difficult for me to work while on vacation. And I've tried, I've tried like, you know, some of the off days on your your vacation trip or travel days, I've tried working. But for me, it's just so difficult to get like the right setup, making sure, you know, it's quiet in the room. I don't have any kids, but I have a boyfriend who likes to sleep in. So, so a lot of my meetings are in the morning. So I have to like either if we're camping, it's not going to happen. But if I'm at a hotel, I have to go downstairs, you know, to the lobby or see if they have an office I can borrow to make sure there's no background noise. So for me personally, I, I can't work on vacation. It's too tempting to just go out and go for a hike. Or like if I'm there working, knowing that my boyfriend gets to go on vacation and like I miss out on the fun, I, I can't do it. But I do know a lot of people who work remotely and have traveled while still working on the job and they were able to handle it. It just it really just depends on yourself and how well you work with distractions, I guess. Yeah, I'll say too that, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. How well you work with distractions, like put your headphones on, get a good set of over-ear headphones. And I, I would also recommend like background noise canceling apps. There's one app called Crisp, K-R-I-S-P, and it's like actual magic. Like you can turn on Crisp and it connects to like any normal account. So like it, it just interferes between your mic and whatever you're on. So whether that's Zoom or Google Hangouts or anything else. And I mean, literally you could be playing guitar while you're on a Zoom call and it's only going to pick up your voice. So it's really interesting. So in your case, you're talking about having four kids. There's a lot of background noise. First of all, you're going to need headphones that sound that out for you. Um, and then you're going to need a mic and a setup that sounds that out for people that you're talking to. So that would be my recommendations. But I mean, if you have four kids, that's a reality for you in your home life already. And you already know what that looks like. So I don't think you'd be asking this question without realizing there are some obstacles that I'm going to face in this setup. But I would say that a remote career, a Salesforce career, it worked for me having one child on the road. And I think if you're gung-ho, I'm, I'm hitting the road, I'm doing this thing, then Salesforce represents a really solid career path for that choice. So for our last question, this is from Corey Simmons. Corey asks, I know it's not all about the money, but you always mention entry-level salaries being around 70K, but how quickly can someone expect to get to 100K plus? <laughs> uh, I always feel bad answering this question because it was, I don't know, it feels like it was so easy for me because I, I got it on the first shot. But here, I'll let Bradley take this for a more realistic answer. Yeah, that's, uh, I would say to set expectations, getting 100K in your first job is 
not what you should expect. So we talk about it all the time, but to reiterate, average entry-level salary through the Talent Stacker program is $72,000. That's what we're seeing right now. So to Corey's point, we're seeing about, you know, about $70,000 entry-level. So how quickly can I get to 100K? Because if we go back to Zach's question that was just asked, he's basically quitting a job making over 100,000 and he's making the lifestyle play to step back so that he can travel in an RV. But the reality is Zach's going to be back at 100K before long. And exactly how long? It depends on a couple of things. But I think the really cool part is we're, we're typically seeing in about 18 months, 18 to 24 months, especially, you should be expecting to be hitting right at that 100K mark. Now you might have a company that you absolutely love the company. They don't quite have the budget or really the understanding of the market and how much you're worth. And they might want to pay you closer to say like 85, 95,000 after that first, you know, 18 to 24 months. And you may make a decision to say, you know what, I'm okay with that because I love this company. And the last thing I want to do is go work somewhere else for an extra, you know, five, $10,000 and not love where I work. So I'm going to stay here and I'm willing to take that effectively a pay cut. Now, on the other hand, if you go work at a consulting firm and you move up and you do good work and you get your billable hours in and you do good work for your clients, like chances are you're going to be at 100K. You could be there within 12 months. 18 months to 24 months would be very, very much expected. Now, I think the really cool thing about this question is actually on our next episode, so the episode after this one, we are actually interviewing a panel of individuals who made it to $100,000 in less than 18 months. And I believe most of them, if not all of them, was actually less than 12 months, but let's call it 18 months to be conservative in different ways that they got there. So a lot of people think you have to job hop to get to six figures. You have to leave your current company, you know, things like that. But these people made it to six figures in a variety of ways. And we're going to get a chance to dive in and understand exactly what strategies they used and how they got to six figures rapidly after just finding out about Salesforce a year, year and a half ago. So that'll be exciting. But the bottom line is to answer the question, I would say safely 18 to 24 months from entry level to six-figure income. What do you think, Anita? Yeah, that sounds about right. I've seen people do it faster who have like an actual plan and go in place and they follow through with that plan, you know, either by getting additional certs or like asking for the raise. Some people don't even ask or they're not sure how to negotiate that. So our guests next week will touch base on that. All right. So if any of the listeners out there are interested or still interested in trying to land a 70K first entry Salesforce job, head over to talentstacker.com forward slash start to join the free five-day challenge. And if you want a chance to hear your questions on the show, just like you heard the questions today, be sure to head over to talentstacker.com forward slash voicemail. And you can leave a voicemail letting us know what your question is, and it may be aired on the show. The other thing you can do is leave a written review for the podcast. And of course, we'd love it if that was a five-star review. And feel free in that written review to ask any questions that you have. And we'll also pull from there to get questions answered here. So if you are enjoying the show and you feel like you're getting value from the show, please feel free to subscribe and leave a review. And like Anita said, talentstacker.com forward slash start for tons of free resources. And we will talk to you on the next episode. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. To get started for free on your own Salesforce career, go to talentstacker.com forward slash start or check the show notes. There you'll find all the resources you need to start earning 60 to 80,000 in as little as eight months, no matter your education or career background. The Salesforce for Everyone podcast was produced by Edmund T and engineered by Andrew Mendonca. 
If you like what we do at this Scrappy Can Do podcast, please help others find us by leaving a five-star rating and a great review on whichever platform you're listening to us right now. See you next time.